Hello and welcome to the Football Funders Christmas Special. Two of the three members here today, myself, Dan, and of course, Ryan. Good afternoon, morning, evening and good night. So as we said, of course, it's Christmas. So we'll get on to our first topic. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Coronavirus. Um, <laughs> currently, people haven't seen the rules. Scotland have recently changed their COVID rules so that clubs can have fan bases in, but only 500 fans per game. And England have kind of agreed to just carry on playing. So my question, Ryan, is almost, uh, do, do you agree that this football should maybe be postponed for a while? My feeling is if you can't have fans in a stadium and the players are that concerned, maybe it should be postponed. A lot of clubs are having serious COVID issues. In my opinion, the, the league should be postponed. No, I don't think it should be postponed. It was postponed briefly last time, but then they magically found a way around it. So for me, my personal opinion, maybe this is controversial, but I think the clubs are actually at fault here because we knew that a new variant had entered the country. We knew the cases were on the rise. They've known how to control it and put the controls in place in the training ground, put protocols in place so that the players don't essentially get corona. So why, when the new variant came in, didn't they just put the protocols back in place? Ask the players to bubble up with their families to make sure they're available instead of doing, say, what Phil Foden and Jack Grealish did the other week, which was go out on the lash after beating Leeds 7-0 and come back from training completely wasted and not get in the following game squad because Pep wasn't happy. You can't say, oh, let's cancel football, let's not let football fans into the stadium if you're going to allow all the players to go on a jolly whenever they feel like it and do however they please. Jack Gray obviously had that issue, didn't he, during the first lockdown uh, where he was out and about being a city. For me, I, I disagree with you. I think, I think if the cases are as high in sports as they seem to be, we, like, we, we don't know if the cl- some clubs are. We can't, I can't tell you, for instance, what Cholton are doing, regardless of how they run their, their training ground stuff. But there's so many games that are being cancelled due to the amount of COVID cases. And obviously the new variant supposedly spread so much easier that one goes, that's your squad down. There's so many games being cancelled. They're not, first and foremost, they're not going to do it. And I tell you the one reason exactly why the Premier League won't do it is because their season next year starts early already. The Premier League season next season starts in July due to the World Cup. So there's no way they're going to delay it because they'll be running into the season. I think, in my opinion, speak to the players, see what they feel. See if the players feel comfortable because, you know, in the first lockdown, the players were given the option, do you want to continue playing or do you want to sit out? They've not been given this option this time. It's just play. And I, I don't think that's necessarily fair. I'd, as much as I was upset when Charlton players, you know, decided not to play because of COVID and kind of breached their contract in certain ways, um, I thought it was good that they got the choice. If people want to give them the choice, then that, that's up to them. For me personally, I, as I, I'll just repeat what I said. Clubs, if they're that worried about Corona... Why haven't they put protocols in place? Why aren't they we don't, we don't know that they up? haven't, though. Well, no, but if you look at it last time, when Corona hit the first time, every club was automatically put under protocols by their leagues. You had to follow protocols, the two-metre distancing rule, leaving in one area, coming out of the other, not using certain facilities because of the fear of spreading Corona. But can you sit there and tell me for sure you know that the club haven't got their own restrictions on? Well, yes, we don't, because, we don't know. No, we can because Jack Graylish and Phil Foden have just been out on the lash, as I pointed out. 
there aren't any restrictions in place on these players at the moment. This isn't a case of everyone's bubbled up and there's restrictions at the training ground and it's still running riot, so we have to shut the league down. Like you said, the whole country in England is still open for business. There aren't any restrictions besides you have to wear a face mask on public transport and in enclosed areas and work from home if possible. I believe that clubs will have been smart enough to say, this is the rule at our training grounds. Yeah, I'm not behind the scenes, so I, I can't tell you, but I would be shocked to find out that the clubs don't have some separate ruling for their own players. If they don't, more for them. But I, I would hope and believe that they would do that. Let's say, for example, they do have some protocols. The protocols are obviously not strict enough, because like I said, I'll go back to the Jack Greedish example. Everyone's still having Christmas parties and whatnot, be it at football clubs or outside of football clubs. So for me personally, the Premier League have stated that if you've got 14 fit players, including one goalkeeper, the match goes ahead. It's that simple. They're having a meeting today. I think it's the captains, managers and the Premier League. And I think the PFA are there as well to talk about player welfare during the pandemic. But you've got a squad of 25 players that are registered. So you can play any one of those players without breaching any Premier League rules and you can use any under-21 players that you want to play as well. But you can this make goes the to... argument that the quality of football might not be as good, but it's well within the rules. So from my point, if the clubs have locked down their training grounds, like Man United did, we had to shut our training ground completely and players are coming back in staggered phases right now to make sure it doesn't outbreak again... If clubs aren't doing anything about the potential rising cases, why should they shut football down? Well, I just think <clears throat> your point that you just made about 14 players, that COVID cases are going to happen. It's just a thing that people are going to have to accept. They're going to happen. You can't keep throwing out. And again, it's something that, from my point of view, taking out the Premier League into consideration, thinking more about the Football League. Probably clubs don't have big squads. If you get six COVID cases, your squad's shut. You're not going to fill a bench. Cholton, for example, had four COVID cases last weekend. We didn't name a seven-man bench because we didn't have seven players to sit on the bench. We only had four injured. Um, I think, again, like obviously I did say the Premier League in my question, but I think it's a, for the Premier League, they, they can get through it. My concern is the lower league clubs. They're not going to get through the games. And then the players that are fit are going to get so many injuries. It's unreal. I mean, Cholton play I think, six games between two weeks ago and, and New Year's Day. That's ridiculous. That's almost three games a week. Sorry, just I understand that. But really quickly, if you postpone games, you're going to have an even bigger fixture pileup in the future. So that's yeah, but, a no-win situation, regardless but of But I think if you, if you tell them now, you can either have three games a week now or play every Saturday, Tuesday in April, they'll take every Saturday and Tuesday in April. Yeah, but they won't play every Saturday and Tuesday in April because they already do that every week. So well, you're going to try we don't. Our April is Saturdays. Is it? That's, that's what I'm saying. Our Aprils are pretty clear because it's the end of the season. They keep it Saturday, Saturday, Saturday so that they can chuck postpone games into April. Right, okay. I, I wasn't because we, that, but... we have a stupid schedule. With but so at the end fucking... of the day, somewhere there's going to be a, 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 a fixture pileup. It, it's just going to happen. Whether you postpone it now or postpone it later, you're still going to be dealing with a higher number of fixtures. So that's a no-win either way. You're either but going to the, deal with it now point, or you're going to deal with it later. The only question be, is, how much of a squad have you got to deal with it now or later? That's the problem. You're but, hoping that at that, that point you have a squad. Right now, you don't have a squad. 
but there's no guarantee that you're going to have a squad later as well. Because as I go back to my original point, if clubs aren't putting strict protocols in place to lower the case rate, then you're going to come April, you can still have a fixture pile up and you can still have six, seven, eight people away with Rona. It's not going to make much difference. Also, given the fact that a lot of players have announced that well, the statistics seem to be fluctuating somewhat, but the vast majority of players aren't fully vaccinated or boosted. So a lot of them have declined to do it because they're concerned. I understand their concerns because like their body essentially is their tool for work. So if they take the jab and something goes wrong, then they can't play. I understand. Also, I understand the opposite with Joshua Kimmich at Bayern Munich, who didn't take the jab got coronavirus, his lungs are now screwed, so he's off for about six months, and now he wishes he'd had the jab. I understand the player's dilemma, but at the end of the day, there's nothing to stop what's happening now from happening in March, April, May time, because coronavirus isn't going to go away. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. It's just, you know, my thing is deal with what's in front of you now and then kind of we'll deal with the future when we're there. Like for, for the Football League especially... We don't have that deadline that the Premier League do with the World Cup because we're not going to have players going. So we can run later in the summer if we need to. If we need to play into June, we can. And we can start our season in August because, let's be honest, are Cholton, are Plymouth, are Sunderland going to have any people at the World Cup? One, maybe two in December. You know, when the World Cup's going on, we'll, we'll still be playing. You know, the, the, the World Cup in December stops the Premier League. It doesn't stop the lower leagues. We'll still be playing. So for the Football League, you probably can postpone games and push them back to a later date. Hence, kind of meaning that if there is COVID cases in April, we could still play in June, May, when the Premier League has a... The Premier League, obviously, because of the World Cup, has to start things very very uh, rigidly, I guess, the right phrasing. You know, they've got to be rigid with their fixture list because they have to get the season done by May, have to get the season started in July so that they can have the break in December. Is it November, December? I can't remember where the World yeah, Cup is. Yeah, I think it's November, December time because I've just been playing it on FM, ironically. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I maintain, look, at the end of the day, I, I, will, I will just maintain the point at this. If the clubs put in every measure they did when coronavirus first came around and they're still struggling to put out a squad, then maybe you should be talking about postponement at any level. But while players are fit and healthy and being allowed to roam free and clubs aren't doing anything to help themselves, I don't think they've got an argument for postponing games. I think a lot of this nowadays is we've got so many foreign players and so many foreign managers that aren't used to playing at Christmas time. They're used to their winter break. And that's not how it's been done in England because it is a long-held tradition that you take your kids to the football matches on Boxing Day. So we've always had fixtures over Christmas. Jurgen Klopp was banging on about it last night after their game. I think it was against Leicester. If I remember rightly, I think it was Carabao Cup. Yeah, in the cup. Yeah. And he was banging on about it. He's like, we've got to play on the 26th and the 28th. It's not right. Jurgen Klopp's been here for years and he's still banging on about it now. And they're just trying to put coronavirus on top to try and make their point that they need a break from fixture congestion. Do you not not think, though, that that is too close to play a game? Like a a one day break in the middle. Do you not think, and especially if you're traveling, so let's like say Liverpool play at home and then on the Saturday, on the, on the so, so Boxing Day is a Sunday, 
Then they play again on Tuesday in Southampton. There's not a rest period for them. That, nothing to do with COVID. That's a completely separate conversation. No, I don't. Because at the end of the day, these players, A, number one, you've got a 25-man squad. That's within the rules of whatever league you're in. You are entitled to use those 25 players how and wherever and whenever you see fit. So you've got 25 players to pick from. So you can potentially put out one team one day and one team another day. And in the case of someone like a Man United, a Chelsea, a Liverpool, even an Arsenal, the vast majority of those 25 players are full international players. So the drop-in quality is minimal at most. That leads me to where I think the biggest problem is. A drop-in quality for Man United and Liverpool and Man City. And so you're talking about Jurgen Klopp and I completely agree. I feel for the teams like Burnley and Southampton that their second eleven is nowhere near their first eleven. Yeah, but to be it's, honest, their second eleven isn't much different from their first eleven because their 11s aren't very good. We've talked openly on this podcast about how Newcastle's team would struggle in the championship because it's not good enough. So whether they replace Joel Linton with Dwight Gale or not, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference. I'd rather have Dwight Gale. Well, I would as well, to be fair. <laughs> but there you go. The quality is not much different. And like I said, you can make the quality argument from a fan's perspective, from a viewing perspective. But from a Premier League rules perspective, it's a non-argument because it says you're only allowed to use these 25 players. You can't go out and sign any more between now and January and you can only register them at a certain point. So you've got 25 players to pick from. That's if, obviously, if your squad's fully fit. You can fill your bench with kids. Everybody does it. So have Most at people it. people have to. <laughs> well, exactly. Have at it and get on with it. You know, I don't, I don't understand why there's uproar. How long's football been going on in this country? 200 years? Yeah, more or less. Every year, bar the war, I think, we've played at Christmas. This should be a non-issue the last thing I'll say on the matter is I think we've come, in my opinion, we've come so far in able to look at the players' bodies and, and what's good for, for them as, as people and players um, that I think, I think that for me, the schedule needs to be adjusted a little bit. I still have no problem playing around Christmas. However, I think maybe we'd take a game, like if you took away the game on the 28th and played 21st, 26th, 31st, that's fine. They could do with having that one game just to let the players rest. I know they've got a big squad, but... I don't understand why these players need rest. They come in, they train for essentially, I think, about two hours a day, right? They're pampered, they're given massages, they're given cryo chambers. Best things to eat is served up for them on a platter. You know, in between games, they essentially, unless they've got a long run, they spend very little time on the training pitch. We've heard so many managers, particularly foreign managers complaining that they don't get enough time on the training pitch. All they've got is game and rest day, game and rest day. There's no chance to hone their skills. So if they're doing two hours training a day and spending the rest of it being pampered and lying around, I'm sorry, if I'm a professional footballer, I can play two games in three days because I play one game, I come home, I do nothing, I have a nice massage, I go in the cryo chamber for a couple of hours, I get another massage after that. Have a nice pat down and a rub down, a nice nutritional valued meal, go for a kip, turn up, play another game the following day. I think it's safe to say we have very different opinions on this matter. I think we will go off it, otherwise, I think we'll be here for another two hours re recycling the same thing. I think you're very uh, on the let's do this historically, and I'm very 
let's look at the players' welfare in a bit. So we'll move on. Please tell uh, me, before we move on, please tell me what is affecting the players' welfare so much to play two games in three days. I just think the body, it's scientific, scientists and the way that sports science works, proves that the body needs multiple days of recovery or not multiple, multiple days of light work to be able to play and be at that level of sports. It's just something that, you know, if you speak to any sports science, when I studied sports science, that's what it showed us, that your body takes a few days to recover to, to make to its full power and obviously they want you at your full power every time you're on the pitch that's from my point of view that's it I mean I get as you said like they're getting pampered and everything's made for them great but their body still needs to be at the right for them to play in my opinion but we'll move on otherwise we'll be here literally all day so the next segment was your idea Ryan so I'll let you uh, you kick us off because you've sent me a video and I've watched it so I'll let you explain it to the viewers right well yeah we were looking at coming up with different segments for the podcast and obviously Pete's not available at the moment so we've got one less brain to brainstorm so I came up with the idea of most iconic goals we've ever seen and this could be for any reason it could be for either one of our clubs it could be on an international stage in just a goal that you've seen that you've never forgotten so I sent down a goal from a player from 1996 an AC Milan player called George Weyer and it was AC Milan versus Verona and basically I mean, Dan, you've seen it. He won the ball on the edge of, of his own area from a pe- from a corner and promptly took out the entire Verona team and spanked the ball in the back of the net. I mean, I wish we could had the rights to show this on, on the pod. On Twitter page, though. I can send it on the Twitter page. Yeah, pop it on the Twitter what page. What I'll do is if you can have a look. We've got, any, we've, we've got any ones that are particularly fantastic, like that one. Yeah. We'll stick it on a Twitter page and everyone can head over to at F-Ball Thunders. Nice little plug there and uh, have a look at the goals because I imagine there's going to be some weldies and some special ones. I've got some special ones. So uh, so you're going to kick off with George Ware. I'll throw in the goal that I was at the stadium to see and it was against Cholton. Uh, it was Robin Van Persie for Arsenal. The year we got relegated, it's uh, down the right-hand side with, I think it's Laurent, puts a cross into the back post and Van Persie is in mid-air and I'm pretty sure he shinned it. But <laughs> the way it flies from the edge of the box into the top corner, it's outrageous. And the, even the the whole Cholton fans just stood up and were like, well, you know, fair play. <laughs> because There's only certain things that you can see that just makes you go, wow. And that was one of those moments. I sent it to you, Ryan, so that you can have a look while we're talking about it. Let's have a look at um, this. From a Cholton perspective, Cholton goals, for me, again, being personal, Patrick Bowers' winner at Wembley in the 90th minute, that's going to live in my memory forever if I can it goals. Back post head of the commentary. I probably can tell you the commentary from the Sky commentator off the bat just sitting here. Um, it's fantastic. So <clears throat> that's probably my two that stick to my head and that involve Cholton. Um, Ryan's currently looking at it, watching Robin Van Perth take the piss out of our tired defence. Is this um, from when he was at Arsenal? Yeah, this is from... Yeah, oh, 2000. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Dumped up and volleyed that into the far top so corner. I'm, oh. I'm pretty sure he shinned it, but even if he has, like, it's not bad, is it? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, people people rave about the, the bicycle kick that Wayne Rooney did against Man City. I think he shinned that as well. Or and he shinned that as well. It wasn't exactly the sweetest of touches. That That is ridiculous. But, um, that, but the other thing, the other, another goal that I always remember, Robin Van Persie's, because it's very similar, is when he played for Manchester United, he scored a, a, a volley, uh, I think it was against Villa at Old Trafford. 
Bright, uh, ball came yeah. over the top and he spanked it. And those two goals are so similar. It gives me horrible flashback. <laughs> Have you got any other goals? I've got a few more, but I'll let I've, you I've got few. loads. There's one I'm trying to find at the moment. It was a Dennis Bergkamp goal. It was unbelievable. He literally, he was stood in front of a defender. I can't remember who he was playing. I'm trying to find it now. But he was stood in front of the defender. The ball came up to him. He literally flicked it round one side of the defender, Newcastle, run round the it. other side of him. I've and got then, it, Newcastle. Is it Newcastle? I'm trying to find it yeah. now. And he then does that, he does that dab, dab his oh ass. Oh my god! It's just he just pirouettes on the ball. There's no other way of saying it. It's just like here it is, like flicks it up round the defender, runs round him, and then side foots it past the goalkeeper. It's ridiculous. Some of the other goals that spring to mind is Paul Scholes' volley against Bradford City. I don't know if you've seen that one. Yes, I've seen it, yes. It literally, the, the cross came over. I think it was Beckham crossed the ball from a corner and the ball didn't even touch the floor and Paul Scholes just spanked it into the top end corner of the net. The goals at the new Camp for Manchester United from Teddy Sherring and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer are always going to live long in my memory. I will never forget them. It's one of the few times that I actually went completely bananas during a football match because the situation was just as unique as, as the goals themselves. You know, people will argue they were just toe pokes into the net, but they were in stoppage time in a Champions League final when you teams basically being completely battered. You had no right to win it, but you still end up winning it anyway. And the biggest one that stands, there's two big ones that stand out for me the most, both Man United goals. There's the David Beckham goal against Wimbledon. I don't know if you remember halfway this line. one. Yeah. From the halfway line, just looks up, sees the goalkeeper off his line. He's like, ping, top corner, done. And then and Rooney course, recreated it, didn't he? Did he? West Ham. Yeah, recreated it against West Ham, probably about 10 years ago now. Who thought, was it for United? For United, yeah. I must have missed that one. I don't know how I missed that one. And the other one is the 1999 semi-final FA Cup versus Arsenal where Ryan Giggs took the piss out of the entire Arsenal team yeah. by beating about six players and beating, I think, was it Patrick Vieira twice before promptly just volleying it into the roof of the net past a completely hapless David Seaman. It was, again, he got, sometimes you've got to ride your luck in those situations and he did ride his luck just a little bit uh, because it came off of his shin at one point. But... At the end of the day, it all counts and you've still got to be there to pop the ball in the back of the net. So... Yeah, as I said, when you were looking at the chart, the Arsenal Van Persie goal, my favourite goal is one of my most iconic goals is Charlton's goal at Wembley. And frankly, if it came off his arse and went in, it'd still be an iconic goal because of the the situation. Like I, I, At the game, it come to about the 90th minute and I was standing with my mum and, and my brother and um, I was talking to Josh and then I turned around to mum and said... Uh, we're not going to score. And mum, mum said exactly that. She said, I don't care if it comes off their ass. Now, my mum doesn't use many obscenities. So when she said that, I knew it was serious. Uh, and then obviously, a few seconds later, we did score. As I said, I can quote the uh, the commentary from that game. My best friend, Joe, who Ryan knows, he sat with my dad in the stand next to us. And apparently, Joe said, I'm going on a bit of a story, but I quite like this story. Joe said that, when the ball got to the edge of the box from our goal, he, went, he said to my dad, and he, Joe always tells me the story, Joe went, oh, how many more chances do we need? And as the ball went in, my dad went, oh, just this one. And then obviously we scored. So dad's fucking Notre Dame. So well done. 
<laughs> but yeah, going back to most iconic goals. So far, we've all, we've kind of spoke about weldies, haven't we? Like one thunderbolts or fantastic plays. Sorry to do this to United fans, but I think the most iconic goal in my mind is Sergio Aguero, where against QPR, like just that moment. I remember watching it on TV. The the commentary again, the way it was built up. Man United had to believe played Sunderland and their game was finished. Yes, we were we were stood there waiting for confirmation yeah. for, for the result to come through because I think they were in like the seventh minute of seventh stoppage minute, time. Yeah. All the players were stood on the pitch. They started to celebrate, I think, if I remember rightly. And then they were told, no, calm down. That's, the game's yeah. not over uh, between City and QPR yet. And then they were all stood on the pitch waiting. And then Aguero scored. And then you just saw all the Man United players hit the floor. The bit that got me watching that game is when Aguero scores, even the QPR fans start celebrating. <laughs> just like someone different's going to win the Premier League. Now it feels the other way around. Everyone's bored of Man City. It'd be come Man United win. And then the other goal that always springs to mind is we discussed it when we were talking about left backs, but Roberto Carlos's free kick. That thing is filth. Which one? The one at Le Tournoi? Yeah. That why? That was Just yeah, filth. that was insane. <laughs> he spanked it and it looked like it was going miles wide. And then all of a sudden it was like someone had stopped it, like frozen it's... time changed the ball's direction and then clicked play again. And then it just shot into the back of the net. It was insane. I mean, to be fair, if we're talking free kicks, Ronaldo's hit a few special ones. Port- uh, Portsmouth, the yeah. United. Everyone talks about how good Ronaldo's, how good Ronaldo is at free kicks. No, he's he's not very at good at free kicks. He's just had a few blinders. He's free kick. I think during the Euros, whoever the, the, the one of the Portugal games were on, and uh, the guy leading the chat said, oh, Cristiano Ronaldo set piece. You know, he's going to probably net one. And one of the people in the studio, I think it might have been Paul Scholes, who turned around and said, no, don't give him it. His record is terrible. Give it to Bruno. And yeah. then they had a debate in the studio about who should take the free kicks. And, you know, as much as people... Right, Ronaldo, fantastic player, as you said, has hit some outrageous free kicks. But most of his free kicks hit the wall. So yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want him on my free kick. People rave about him, but in compared to someone like David Beckham or even James Ward-Prowse or Bruno Fernandes, he's not even close. No. In in terms of technical ability, he started really, it was really weird because it's like he started really well and he developed this unique style to get the ball up and over as hard and as fast as he could. And it worked in the beginning, but it, it was almost like he became so obsessed with the technique and perfecting the technique that it just went completely wrong and he ended up being not very good. Do you remember... Um... David Luiz started hitting his free kicks like that and they were pinged in. If you watch Rashford, he, he did does it with it his. But I think with Luiz, it was with his side foot. But he did the, the same technique with the side of his foot. It was bonkers. But yeah, Marcus Rashford's free kicks are also woeful. Sideshow Bob, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, Sideshow Bob. Sideshow Bob. And the, only, side show. The, only, the only other goal that really came to mind was, and it's one where the keeper's off his line, but still, Zlatan Ibrahimovic scored over a kick against England for Sweden from about 30 yards out the ball goes up Joe Hart comes running out of his goal because it's Joe Hart and he just heads it straight up in the air and Zatan for 30 yards overhead kicks it and doesn't even bounce just goes in the net so it's unreal I mean Ruud van Nistelrooy I remember one from Ruud van Nistelrooy where he he was never the fastest of players but he had a bit of pace 
I remember him scoring a goal against Fulham where he just like outskinned half of the Fulham team and then just very coolly side-footed the ball into the side into the net. I could really go on forever with, with goals. I really could, but we probably will end up being here all day. I think one more to mention, and I don't know if you remember it. Danny Rose scored against Arsenal on his league debut. The corner goes in, and I think it's cleared by one of the Arsenal defenders, and it drops to about 35 yards out. And Danny Rose hits one from the edge of the box, cross to the other corner. It's, and I think David Bentley might have done it for Spurs as well, actually. Well, if we're talking about debut goals, you've got to talk about... I'm not sure if it was actually his debut, but Rooney's goal against Arsenal when he was like 16. Do you remember that one? No, I remember his debut was Panathinaikos, so I don't know. That was his hat-trick for Manchester United on his Champions League debut. I don't remember his actual debut. I remember the the Champions League debut. He was like 16 years old and he scored it against Arsenal, I think it was. Right, so we'll move on then. We've done some iconic goals, lots of iconic goals. As I said, we'll pick a few of our favourites and we'll stick them on the Twitter page. George Weyer will go up. I'll put Patrick Bowers up so I can watch it for myself. And you know what I will do? There's also a video from Wembley where you can see Pete uh, because the camera was actually watching a Cholton fan who was sat in front of Pete. So that'll make him laugh. He won't thank me for that, but I'll do it. Well, So we'll move on to wingers. So we've been through a lot of positions. We were going to wait for Pete, but sadly, he's not available at the minute. So uh, just me and Ryan. Before we get on to the list, because I imagine Ryan's got quite a list. I don't. I have about six players because I think wingers are disgustingly overrated <laughs> in football. They're made out to be the kings. And there's only a handful that I think I would be absolutely fine picking for every team, if that makes sense. Because a lot of people would be like Eden Hazard, Raheem Sterling, and just, no, not for me. So I'll let you go and then I'll, I think I'll chuck in as we go along. Well, no, I just, before we do, make your case for them being overrated. Well, I just feel like modern day wingers, every time you watch a game, it's all about the wingers. And no matter, a winger could be awful and then do one step over and he's man of the match. Or he can beat one player and he's man of the match. I think that wingers get this leeway. I don't know what the word is. Like a winger can be woeful. But if he does one moment of magic, that's it. It's fine. Wingers played fantastic. How, how many games hit on TV where I don't want to pick on someone, so I'm not going to name a name, but they've played awful, but then they've, you know, put in a cross that someone scored from and the commentator's saying he's had a fantastic game. You're like, well, actually, he's ran at him 10 times, done 15 skills and fallen over for most of the game. He's been crap. But can't you make that same argument for strikers? They, they well, yeah, you can. And, and, they and that's why when anything. we do strikers... You're going to make the strikers, same argument. I'll make the same argument because I think that my list for central midfielders was massive because I think central midfielders have the opposite problem. People forget central midfielders exist because they don't do flashy stuff. They just do the hard work and the grind. Of course, some of them do the flashy stuff, but in the majority. Well, I think wingers are kind of the celebrities of football, strikers, wingers, the, the forward line, if you will. So there's I don't have a long list because there's only a few players that, I really enjoy watching or did enjoy watching that I felt were always at a level of quality, if that makes sense. You know what? Do you know what I'm trying to say? I may not get yeah, the right Yeah, you've got to do it over a sustained period of time. For example, like you said, you brought up Eden Hazard. For a few years, he was fantastic at Chelsea, but he's gone to Real Madrid and we've not seen Hyde nor Hale. Yeah, like he's, he doesn't since. make my list. People, um, I will say before we get onto the list, obviously me and Ryan are you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s. 
that's kind of our reach. Uh, late 80s for you, really, 90s, 2000s. So likes of George Best, obviously fantastic wingers, but doesn't make my list because I didn't see him play. <laughs> yeah. And um, a, Stanley Matthews was another one that came up a lot. I didn't see him play. Yeah, it's, it's the same for me. I'm not of that era. I'm just after that era. I'm sure had Pete been with us, he would have raised those names. Uh, I think for me, starting off the main one is Ryan Giggs, being a Man United fan. He's the most decorated Premier League player in Premier League history, I believe. One of the top appearances in the Premier League as well. We talked about his goal against Arsenal a few minutes ago. I don't want to get into him as a person because there's a lot of stuff going on around that at the moment. Mm. But as a football talent, I suppose for me, he's the iconic winger. Tricky, skillful, fast. Almost the most of the wingers I associate, they're always quite slim or quite small built. So, yeah, I mean, Giggs for me is, is the first one that pops to my head. Yeah, I mean, he made his debut in 1990. 1991, I believe. 91. And he was playing on the wing until 2009-ish. Yeah, about then. And then he started that's moving inside. Fucking last 18, 19 years on the left wing before moving. Because his last few years was in centre midfield. But people don't realise that even at 34, he was still on the left wing. Yes. And he also had a lot of injuries. He had a lot of hamstring injuries throughout his career. There was... A period of time, I think it must have been around about 95, 96, where people were really questioning whether Ryan Giggs was going to get sold because there were a lot of clubs in Italy that were looking at him. In Milan, I remember being really after him. And he was getting injured so much that everyone thought, well, as fantastic as he is, Man United might actually just cash in here and sell him because they can't keep him fit. But he's gone on to have one of the longest careers in Premier League history, so you can't really argue it. Who's the one besides Giggs that sticks in your mind? Current day, well, I think all time, Giggs and then I'd say Ronaldo from Man United early Real Madrid years, because obviously when he went to Madrid, he did start on the wing before he moved up front. So I think Ronaldo's early success in Madrid and the latter stages of United, where he was predominantly a winger, deserves a lot of credit. Because people now will say he's a striker. I haven't got Messi on this list because I will put Messi on centre-forwards. Uh, although he did start on the wing, I think he predominantly was in the 10 or as a striker. For me, Ronaldo and Giggs were the, actually the top two names on my list for wingers. Uh, for much the same reason, you know, he played there, I think, six, seven years on the wing before he kind of went up front. And as you said, it was about consistency and even when he went from United to Madrid, he got better, didn't he? Before and then they moved him up front. So, like even as a, on the winger, he was still cracking in. And again, I don't always think he's all about goals, but you can't deny Ronaldo's talent, can you? So I think if he's not on the list, you've you've made a big mistake for anyone that's made a list like this and not put Ronaldo on it. I think the problem for me is there's three players that we're going to talk about at some point, and I don't know where to put them. And that's Ronaldo, Messi. And Mohamed Salah. Ah, <laughs> funny because <you> say that. <laughs> all three of them, they potentially play anywhere across the front four. If you're playing a a four-two-three-one or whatever, they they can play left, right, in the ten as as a striker. But I went off the basis that when I watched Ronaldo at United and Madrid, he was off the left, coming in off the right. Messi, as I said, plays in that 10 striker role. 
And Mo Salah, who's also on this list, predominantly plays off the right coming inside. So as much as he is a forward, he's a wide forward. So he, he's on my list. As I said, I've only got six, seven names. Um, and even one of them, I'm not even sure he's a winger. So we'll, we'll get on to him in a minute. But yeah, Salah's on the list. Best player in the world right now, isn't he, really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, without a doubt. Amazing talent. The, the guy that is just, as soon as you gets the ball, he's a greedy git. Like, he doesn't pass. But when when he's feeling it, you can't stop him. There's just no one in the world that's going to stop him. Controversial opinion, but he really reminds me of Messi in that sense. Mm. When he's in form and he gives you the ball, mm. you don't really need anybody else because no. he's just going to no. do it. Obviously, I'm talking about it's, Messi and his pomp. But... He, um, the thing about Salah that amazes me is for a small lad, he didn't throw his body around. Yeah, He's not afraid to get dirty and throw his... Because he's not big. He's... He might be six foot, and he but he's not big built, but he throws his body. And he's got no problem with it, and I think that makes him even better player. That I think you could put Salah as a as a nine, and he'd still be fine. Yeah, I, I think, think his he, talent's just there. Yeah, and I think he's also got because of his size and his body shape, he's also got a lower center of gravity, so mm. it makes him more solid both on the ball and off the ball in terms of challenges because the center of the weight of his weight is is essentially in his feet as opposed to in his upper body, so mm. he can stay up longer. But yeah, no, Salah's definitely up there. So the one that hasn't made this list, staying on the Liverpool front, I haven't put Sadio Mane on this list because I wondered if he's a step down. I really rate Sadio Mane, but I'm not sure he's up there with Salah, Ronaldo, Giggs, a few others that I'll mention, me personally. And I think there's probably others on this list that aren't at that level because... Ronaldo is like on a he's god tier, isn't he? You know what I mean? Like gigs, they're they're on a tier of their own. But uh, Mane, I think is underrated, be- and I wonder if Mane, if Salah's not at Liverpool, do we see Mane as a better footballer? Mm, uh, controversial decision. I controversial opinion. Sorry, I actually think Mane's a bit overrated. Yeah, I, love I, Mane. I think he's I think he's a very good player, um, but I think he's very one dimensional. And I think in order to be going up an echelon, you need to have a variety in your play. For example, if you look at Ronaldo, Messi, Salah, even Wayne Rooney to an extent, they could do everything. They could create, they could score, they could do it in different ways. Whereas Mane is very much, he reminds me of Andre Kanchelskis from the early Man United side, which was like super fast, head down, direct, will score goals. Great to have, but you're not going to put him up there with the likes of Giggs and everybody else. So I'm going to carry on onto my list. Uh, the first name I want to mention is someone, I don't know if you'll agree, but I loved watching him for, for Chelsea, Madrid, not so much in Madrid, he did a bit off at Madrid, he did okay at Madrid, and then Bayern Munich's Arjun Robben. I loved watching Arjun Robben. As, as I said, he's not on a tier of Ronaldo and Giggs because I, and Salah because I think they are the top echelons of wingers. But I think Arjun Robben's Again, we're talking about consistency. Barring injuries, if you ignore the fact that he was injured a lot, which is the negative on Arjun Robin, when he was fit, outrageously good footballer, had injury problems. But as a player, a player that I think someone, I saw a stat that like he missed like a quarter of every season and still had leading assists in every league that he played in. Like eight out of his 13 years or something. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. 
he was a fantastic talent, but I mean, I think for me personally, I think when we're talking Aaron Robin, I think it's C. Eden Hazard. Yeah, I'd have a bother. It's Hazard for me. Uh, I, I think they're they're very similar in terms of, of their ability, in terms of their injury record. I mean, the the other one you talk about Aaron Robin, I think another one in that conversation is Frank Ribery. Uh, yes, of France and Bayern. Munich. I didn't have it. I mean, I put Ribery at a lower level than Robin personally, but. I would actually put him a level above Robin, but that's just me personally. I think for me, the one that's probably not made your list, it may have done, I don't know, but I think it changed the game when it came to wingers, was David Beckham. Um, yeah, I the list. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a very different type of winger. People would argue he was a wide right midfielder as opposed to an actual winger. Uh, but he definitely changed the game. That, and everybody's talked about his set-piece delivery and his crossing ability. For me, he's second to none. In, in those aspects. But I also think he's, I've said this on the pod before, and I know Pete disagreed with me, but I actually think David Beckham is massively underrated. His passing was first class. His first touch was amazing. He finished very well, and he had a fantastic engine on him as well. He could really get about the pitch. So I think David Beckham doesn't necessarily get the credit that he should. There's a few names that I've got will go on to, kind of follows the theme of Beckham. Where I was young in that kind of early 2000s period, as far as I'm concerned, Beckham's a god because what he did for England was fucking unreal. Um, so I'm on, I'm quite firmly based in your camp on that argument with Pete, but I might have to go back and watch you. Maybe I changed my mind, but I mean, when I grew up, like Beckham had the ball, you stared at your TV because he was either going to put in a cross or whip one top corner. You were fascinated by what he was going to do. So there's two. I've got a few others named. The first one I'll throw in because it's one that was on all the lists is Luis Figo. He yep. came in on every list and obviously talent, a Rolls-Royce type of player, wasn't he really? He was amazing. And what's more, he had huge balls because he went from Barcelona to Real Madrid in a straight mm. transfer. It was so hated. He actually had a pig's head the pig thrown at him. <laughs> he was so hated, but he was. He was an absolute, I remember that Portugal side very well because they had Figo and Rui Costa, Rui Costa. as well. They, yeah. they were Rolls-Royce players. Yeah, I mean, we didn't see him in this country, unfortunately. I would love to have seen him in this country, but he was he was a global superstar. You knew whoever he was, much in the same way that you knew who the original Fat Ronaldo was. I can't wait um, to get to him next week. I'm so excited. Um, <laughs> Again, another one that when I started to get into football, I said that early 2000s period, someone I used to love watching was Robert Perez. Yep. The way he linked up with... To be fair, you could put anyone in that Arsenal team on this list, but that kind of Bergkamp, Henri, Perez, Lundberg just used to cause carnage. And Part it was of the great to watch. Side. Yeah. Yeah, absolute carnage. And Robert Perez moved around. Again, we were talking about it with Luis Figo, a bit like a Rolls Royce. It never looked difficult for Perez. He never looked like he was running at full speed or he was trying too hard. He just got the ball and went, right, that one. Yeah, I'll go this way. You, do, Yeah, there you go. And watching him play football, and I actually went back not long ago to watch the, an Invincible programme that Sky Sports were running. And again, just watching him, and I thought, hang on, I know you're talking about Omri, and I get why you're talking about Omri, but have you seen what Perez has just done? <laughs> Are you sure? Um, I think it's not underrated because he does get the applaudits, but I think he deserves more of a mention when they're talking about the Invincibles. I think the other thing for, like you said, he wasn't a powerful runner. He glides. I think mm. the biggest problem for Perez was not only did he have Thierry Henry, a rapidly maturing Thierry Henry in the side, 
He also had one Dennis Bergkamp, who we talked mm. about earlier, and he was another technically gifted player. Who could <laughs> I'm sure we'll see both of them, by the way, next week. Glide all <laughs> over the pitch. So that, that side was so full of amazing talent that I don't think anyone really quite gets the credit that they necessarily deserve with the exception mm. of Henri, because Henri was... Not he was originally a winger who became a, a mm. Juventus who became a striker under Arsene Wenger and kind of broke the mold as to what a striker should be. He was essentially the first modern striker that we see today. Whereas beforehand it was like big number nines, Alan Shearer's, people like that. The other one on my list that I put down from watching as a kid was Rivaldo from Brazil. And uh, who, what team would he have been at when I was Barca? Young? Yes, he'd have been at Barcelona. Yeah. Another one that when I, I think I got him towards the back end of his career, really, like the football that I watched from Rivaldo was probably, I don't know how old he was, but I'm sure he was over 30 at the time because he's yeah, actually he would have he's been. into his 50s now. Um, yeah, Barcelona, Milan kind of crossover. Uh, I know he played for Deportivo at quite a high level and obviously in a fantastic Brazil side. I really like to watch Rivaldo because, again, another one that never, when I watched him, didn't have necessarily the pace because he was in his 30s. Mm. But play out on the wing and and it probably helped him, the players he was around. But ju- again, just moved effortlessly and played nice touches, made runs that worked clever. I loved watching Rivaldo. Again, it might be my younger eyes and I need to go back and have a watch again. But Rivaldo was someone that, when I think of my younger days, he's one of them that comes up. The other one that came on the list a lot, I'd just like to say that's definitely not on my list, is Ronaldinho. <laughs> I was waiting for this. And we've done this, me and you did a podcast, didn't we? Mm-hmm. A long time ago, one of the early ones, it was just being you, and we spoke about Ronaldinho. You can do all the skills you want, mate. You, you're not on the list. You're not close. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I will repeat what I said. I think creatively, I think he was outstanding. But like we both said on that previous podcast, he wasted his career to a large extent. We know why. And the, the reason that his career kind of went down the toilet is very sad. But, you know, at the end of the day, it happened. And you can only judge off what happened, can't you? And... And as much as he was a fun player to watch, I, I I wouldn't put him in this conversation. And also, at his peak, was he at his peak for that long, realistically? He wasn't, no. He had about, I think, about three or four good years at Barcelona. And then I remember him turning up at AC Milan. And he yeah, because you're looking at what, 02 to 06. Yeah, really. That was went, to, went to Milan. Sadly, went to Milan. That's when the tragedy happened. And yeah. That's when he turned off from football, didn't he, really? I don't really see him. Like you were just talking about Rivaldo. Rivaldo was a classy player. But I wouldn't really see him as a winger. I, I would have put both of those two in as a 10. But Well, so my only reason I put Rivaldo in as a winger is was because I wanted him... I didn't think you could put him as... See, we did midfielders as central players. So I didn't, I didn't want to put him in as a central midfielder. So I, that's why he's on this list rather than a central midfielder. Yeah, no, I understand that. I didn't know whether we were going to do 10s or whether we were just going to include them in strikers because strikers one is going to be a long one. Oh, gonna... Gonna be... I think we might have to do like a five each or something and get <laughs> just debate because um, we're going to be all fucking... Like we it... could... just, just talking about Premier League strikers, we could be here all day. I think it'll also depend on what other topics we've got. We might be able to leave out a, a topic or two in, because, in the future I mean... one. You could, I could roll off five strikers right now, and you know, we'd be arguing over them for the next 10 days. So, 
maybe next week we could discuss the best Premier League striker that leans into the to it all. Yes. Because, I mean, I have my opinion, but I imagine that everyone else in the world has a very different opinion to the next person. So, yeah. Right. Let's just go quickly over my last two. Uh, th- this one I don't think you would have heard of, but his name was Dejan Savicevic, another AC Milan player. He was very much in the Robert Perez mould, like you said. He wasn't a conventional winger like Ryan Giggs was or an Andre Kanchelskis. He was very cultured, very stylish. His passing was amazing. And the big one for me that has always stood out outside of England for me was Pavel Nedved at Juventus. Oh, yeah. He was... Oh, shit. Oh, he was such a player. Oh, literally, he had the engine... The easiest way I can describe it is he was Giggs and Beckham rolled into one. That's the highest compliment I could possibly pay him. He, he had the, the technique, the delivering ability, the pace, the power, the poise. I remember him, and I remember we're going to get onto strikers next week, but Del Piero, I remember him and Del Piero having this kind of almost telepathic link playing for Juventus. They were unbelievable to sit and watch. I'm sure I've forgotten a bunch of other wingers as well that people could mention I mean Mark Overmars I think should be in with a shout of being there or thereabouts because he was a, he was fantastic for Arsenal not as good for Barcelona mm. but he was a hell of a talent but Pavel Nedved oh what a player yeah Pavel Nedved someone I completely forgot until you said it and then the brain clicked watching him at Juventus that to be fed out Juventus team from that kind of decades unreal wasn't it <laughs> we'll it was it he- next week with Even going going back before then, they had Viali, Ravinelli, Roberto Baggio. I mean, Juventus have had some ridiculous teams. We'll move on to pick bench cell because otherwise our brains are going to keep ticking over and coming up with new. So I'll I'll give you three to choose from. I'll give you Giggs, Nedved and Rivaldo. Well, I'm starting Giggs. Nedved. I think Nedved's on the bench then, and I'm going to sell Rivaldo. <laughs> Rivaldo, sorry, I said Ronaldo. I meant Rivaldo. I think you've got to start gigs for everything that we said about him at the beginning. I don't think there's been a better left winger ever, is there? It's hard, isn't it, to, to pick it up? Otherwise, I mean, if I was to do that, I'd have to give serious fault between gigs and Nedved because Nedved was really something special. But I think I'm, I think I might just go along with what you've picked yeah i think that's i think right okay let's go mo salah uh luis figo and david beckham oh oh, that's a bitch oh oh, you're enjoying that one i can tell by the smile on your face oh shit i can't believe i'm gonna say (laughs) that i'm going to pick luis figo Ooh. Going to bench Mohamed Salah. I'll buy Bex. And with <laughs> a broken heart, I'm going to have to sell David Beckham. That's revenge for all the shitty Cholton ones that you've given me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me. If you, if you think the ones that have been so far are bad, wait till we come to the conclusion of pick, bench, sell. We're almost there. I know. It's next week. I'm, I'm tempted to postpone it just in case until Pete gets back because I have a feeling it's going to be like Bentman, Donker and someone else. And I'm going to have to sit here and rock myself to sleep. Oh, I think it's going to be even worse than that, Dan. Um, yeah, I just, I'd say I, 
did I did think of that. I always give Charlton a mention when we do this list. Uh, obviously not, but Charlton have this horrendous thing that uh, every winger we have is useless at football. So if you're looking at our my generation of Charlton, our best winger is probably John Robinson. If you remember him from the early 2000s, the only two that I can really stick that really stick in my mind as wingers for Charlton are Sean Newton. Well, three really: Sean Newton, Adamola Lookman, and John Robinson. So there you mm. go, pick bench cell. Oh, the other one I'd add to that list before I do that is Goodmanson at Burnley. Obviously, we had him before Burnley. Yes, although apparently he's learned to defend, which he didn't show that at Charlton. So thanks for that, Yohan. I'd I'd start John Robinson. Cholton boy, still works for the club now. Lovely fella, but also a really another one. Just he got the ball and just buggered off of it. And it, when I watched him, it was the back end of his career, and he'd still just beat players. And when we went to the Premier League, and I'm talking like 2002, 2003, he's 32, 33, and his ability to still push a ball around someone and go and get to get a cross in. I've got a DVD from I think it's 0203. And the amount of goals that Jason Yule scores because he's Robinson just goes, there you go, I'll, I'll tuck you in afterwards as well. You know, puts him in bed, tucks it up, gives him his cocoa and buggers off again. Uh, then I'd bench. So I don't remember watching Sean Newton. Oh, he so moved, that's an easy sell for you then. So he moved on in 01, 02, went to Wolves. So I may have seen him, but not nothing that I remember. So Lookman's the backup. Yeah, it's Addy Lookman. Addy Lookman's obviously the most recent one. He's one of the best players I think I've seen make his date. The only one I'd say that I saw and knew that was better was Joe Gomez. And I think every Charlton fan will say that. When Lookman and Gomez made their debuts, you, but you knew instantly they're not going to be here long. They're too good. Concer was the same, but for some reason he got a few injuries and hung around a bit longer. But Lookman was... Um, yeah, he, like, he made his debut at 16 and teams in the championship were scared of him. He bossed the championship. I actually remember he scored against Rotherham and I was at yours, ironically. We won 2-0 away at Rotherham and he scored. And I started, and you asked me who he was and I said he was 16. <laughs> He's just scored. Um, and I remember saying when he got his move to Everton, Everton might not be the club for him, but I think he'd be have success. And I'm hoping that Leicester keep him because he's done all right for Leicester. But yeah, going back to what I was just saying about Charlton have shit wingers. Once Robinson left, we had Jerome Thomas and Darren Ambrose for about the next six years. And Jerome Thomas was... The Darren Ambrose was okay, but it's scarred by the fact that he left to sign for Palace. So that instantly makes him a scumbag. And Jerome Thomas was just really bad at football. And then who did we replace them with? And then we had Carl Reed and Lloyd Sam. And Lloyd Sam was another one that came for our academy, showed signs, but he could have done with a third league, if this makes sense. He was way too good for League One, but wasn't good enough for the championship. He needed like a, a new league. He needed a championship two. That was his level. And then even when we went up under power, we didn't really play the wingers. We had Jackson playing as one of our wingers and he's slower than a 180 bus. So he, uh, <laughs> so wingers haven't been our, our strong point. Bowyer doesn't play with wingers and Jackson doesn't play with wingers. So, yeah, wingers have been quite a soft spot where Man United have had, you know, they've had their fair share of wingers, haven't they? Yeah, and fair share of crap that goes with it as well. I'm surprised you weren't 
kind of rubbing your hands with this one to give me a crap one because we've well, had I w- to put... So I was thinking of it, but I couldn't kind of nail the worst ones on top of my head. A lot of them that I was thinking of, like Nanny, I find Nanny a hilarious footballer, but I know there'll be Man United fans that think he was great. I thought he was turned. Nani was hit and miss. He could either be fantastic or he could be atrocious. So it depends which Nani turned up on the day. To, to be honest, I think I only came up with like six United wingers throughout the years because I had like Blomquist, Kanchelskis, Ronaldo, Beckham, Valencia, who actually was more of a right back for you over the years than a winger. Depay was there, but shortly. <laughs> I think Valencia actually should doesn't get the credit he, he should because he's actually, if you look at fullbacks now you could argue that he was the the hybrid that became the new fullback if you see what I mean he was the winger who reverted to a fullback and became basically a deep lying winger now which is essentially what all fullbacks are so I watched I was watching a program the other day with um on YouTube and a man it was a Man United fan who's on there who said everyone that doesn't support Man United doesn't understand Antonio Valencia's role at Manchester United and how important he was to Manchester United they said, like, because when Giggs left, he said, uh, Giggs left, when Gary Neville left, so we didn't really replace him and we never replaced him. He said, but Valencia was, you know, a big stopgap that worked for Man United. And he was saying that if you asked a lot of United fans for the last 10, 15 years, who was your favourite right back? He says most of them will come out and say Antonio Valencia. The only thing that you could argue with that is well, the other op- option was Raphael. So don't really have any options. Yeah, I mean, that, like you said, there aren't really that many choices because we went through a phase of Chris Smalling playing there, Phil Jones playing there, Raphael, Raphael. played there, John O'Shea switched from left to centre to right. West Brown, I think, at one stage. West well. Brown was there as well. And I mean, the other thing is Valencia doesn't get the credit he deserves as a winger because there was a year where Wayne Rooney was on absolute fire. I think he scored about 31 mm, goals that season. Yeah, 10-11, I think it was. And he doesn't score half of those goals without Valencia. If you look, just go and watch that season. Valencia's just chucking balls in left, right and centre and Rooney's just hammering them in from all angles. So I don't think Valencia gets the credit he really deserves. Going back to the point that I made at the beginning with Valencia, one of the problems I have with Ringers is because people like Valencia, because they weren't flashy and stylish, as you said, didn't get the credit because he didn't do amazing skills and he didn't, score amazing goals but what he did do was get down the line and put in great crosses that's what I want my wingers to do you know I'm quite happy with you if that's if you're buying me a winger modern day wingers now don't really exist today those type of wingers and they're now inside forwards I still love that get to the byline and whip a cross in like for instance at Cholton we have Jane Stockley who's the beanpole but we don't have anyone really that gets down that wing and puts the cross in because we play with wing backs. We, we do because Leco plays out there on the wing back. But when we had Nigel Atkins and we played a f- <clears throat> the four, three, three, we never had someone to put that cross in. And I still think there's a place in the game for that. Even if it's off the bench, you know, get the ball into the box type of player. I think it is. I think also we had a period of players like Theo Walcott and uh, Aaron Lennon, who looked like those kind of wingers, but couldn't deliver. So in terms of crossing, so it, everybody sort of moved towards the inside forwards. Valencia, for me, I think was the closest thing we ever got to Andre Kanchelskis. After Kanchelskis left, we replaced Kanchelskis with David Beckham, which you can't argue <laughs> with. Yeah. Um, and then we went back to a similar player, a very direct, hard, fast-running winger in Valencia. 
Keith Gillespie we had for a little while as well. Who we. <laughs> very, very. Oh, did he play for Charlton? Yeah, he, spent, sure he six, spent six months at Charlton. But we, we had Keith Gillespie for a little while, who was a fantastic young talent, very much in the similar mould of the Valencia and Kanchelskis. But we had to give him up to get Andy Cole, and we definitely got the better end of that deal. Um, I'm trying to think. Bebe's probably the worst I've seen. <laughs> um, he's one of those players who, if you look at his stats, his stats actually aren't that bad. I think he started seven games for Man United, scored three goals or something like that. So if you look at it, you're like, hold on a minute. But Still he plays was, now as well, I believe. He was, he was atrocious for us. He could barely control a ball, but... I'm someone think, else as well, and I can't remember the other one. Yes. We had David Bellion, who came in as striker turned winger, and he was atrocious. He was really bad. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else we've had. Depay, you've named. Yeah, Narnie, you had that. Discussed. Luke Chadwick. Luke, oh, bless him. He did a podcast the other day. Oh, bless him. He did the Man United podcast. He got so much stick. Physical features, bless him. He was merciless. Did you have Carol Poborski as well? Carol Poborski was a one-hit wonder, yes. Uh, we got him after Euro 96. He did all right. Not too bad. He was, again, very much in the Kanchelskis mould. But he had David Beckham. He was competing with Beckham. You're not going to win. So I'm trying to think if there's anybody else I've missed. I've got a li- I'm online looking at a list of Man United bad performers and there's some fucking beauts in this list. Oh, there'll be loads there forever. But there's not strikers, but there's like Geordie Cruyff, uh, David Jordy Bellion. Cruyff, there you go. There's another winger who wasn't any good. Quentin Fortune. Nobody knocks Quentin Fortune. He was, he wasn't the best player in the world, but he could play at left back or left wing, and he run his nuts off. I think he played centre back for a while as well. Did he bloody hell? Um, he run his nuts off. He worked hard. He was determined. He was West Brom. Kieran Richardson. Kieran Richardson overrated. Signed him from West Ham. Got rid of him. West Brom. No good. Um. Yes, what I mean on the list of shy. The one question I would ask before we move on to shit Aldery, go on. on the comment I just made about wingers and kind of inside forwards, when do you think the change happened from get the ball down and get the ball into the box to inside forwards? And if you think of it, is it, is it Ronaldo, that Cristiano Ronaldo effect in, say, 08, 09, 10 that changed the way? Because even if you look at kind of 06, 07, Mourinho's Chelsea had Damien Duff, Joe Cole off either wings. Their job was still get the ball into the box. Do you know what I mean? Like that was still their 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 mo. So when when do you think the, the takeover point is or the turnaround? I actually think the catalyst was Thierry Henry. All the way back there for, for inside wards. Yeah, because he was originally a winger, as we talked about at Juve, and he came over, I think it was about six million quid, which looking at it now was a bargain. And he was this really lanky, fast winger, but couldn't deliver a ball for Toffee. And then he got switched up front and he set the precedent of what a striker could be as a complete player, as opposed to just being Alan Shearer, who would run and head and score. So I'd Fine think, with that, by the way, either or. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, I think it was Thierry Henry that said that a winger could play as a forward. Right, yes, yeah, so I think we've... Um... We've hit that quite nicely. So we're on to the shithousery. The shithousery this week, there wasn't a lot, I won't lie to you, that wasn't a fantastic amount of shithousery. So this week, the only one I could really find, apart from people retweeting the last week's one from the non-league side with us. That, that was an effort. That was great. That's 
that has been retweeted by everyone on Twitter this week. So I'm going to say we started that. So congratulations. <laughs> but uh, this week's one, it, it, it's going to go to Aaron Ramsdale of, uh, well, I wouldn't say Bournemouth, of no, Arsenal. Arsenal. Uh, they played Leeds on Monday night football. I believe, was it 3-0 in the end? I think so, yeah. Um, so there's a video clip of the Leeds from behind the goal. Ramsdale's got a goal kick and Leeds do what every football club does and does the, oh, your shit. Uh. But as they do it, Ramsdale turns around and joins in with them. <laughs> and I thought, you know what, fair play. I quite appreciate that. And then from the goal kick that he kicks out, Arsenal score. They go on and score. So Ramsdale turns around, does it again. There's a video of him, of him like giving it to the fans, saying the your shit are, and celebrating in front of the goal, just facing the Leeds fans. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? Fair play. Well done, Ramsdale. You, you, you hero. I must uh, admit, I'm, Aaron Ramsdale, I really wasn't sure about him when he signed for Arsenal, as we've talked about in the podcast. But his character is really starting to come through. I'm really starting to appreciate him on, on a different level. I just hope he doesn't go down the Joe Hart and Jordan Pickford route of where he gets himself too wound up and it ends up costing him his career. He, for me, if Dean Henderson doesn't get first-team football in the coming, well, year, really, he's the goalkeeper that i pick for the World Cup. On, on current form, yeah. Because I, I, there's no doubt. I don't. I don't want to pick Pickford ever, and Henderson barely sees the pitch, so I wouldn't pick Henderson for that reason. Who I mean, if Henderson sees options? Pope, is that Johnson, it? Pope and Johnson? We don't know where Johnson's going to be because he's leaving West Brom. So yeah. who knows where Sam Johnson will be? And Nick Pope's form has dropped off in the last year or two from where it was a few years back. So for me, it's my battles between Henderson and Ramsdale. And at the minute, Ramsdale has it quite comfortably because Henderson's not in the conversation. Yeah, I, I think at the moment, I think, like you said, I think it's actually between Pickford and Ramsdale because, like you said, Henderson's not playing. No. So- I wonder if Henderson leaves in January or definitely next summer if he can't get that number one jersey. You know, I think it depends on who the next Man manager will be. If the next manager comes in and says, De Gea's my guy, if I'm Henderson, I'm saying, right, then you let me go because I've got a World Cup to be in. <laughs> I, I feel sorry for him because had he not got COVID, I'm pretty sure he would have started this season ahead of the higher. Like Joe Gomez is someone that I'll always praise. He, like, he needs a move, doesn't he? If he's going to try and regain that England spot, there's a spot for him. I mean, with the likes of Tyrone Mings and Connor Cody, there's a spot for Joe Gomez in that squad. So he needs to go and, and get it. I'm sorry, I'm still, I said it on a previous podcast, I'm dying to see Gomez and Fakayo Tomori play together. <laughs> I just want yeah. to see it. They are so yeah. unbelievably talented. Don't care. People will say I'm biased. If you're going to call up the Villa defender, don't pick Mings, pick the other one. I don't care Who if concert. he's come for our academy or not. <laughs> you pick every concert, even us Villa fans, is a better defender than Tyrone Mings. And Mings isn't even playing at the moment, but again, this is Gareth Southgate. It's a club poo, environment, isn't it? Yeah. Poo-pooing himself, saying I pick players based on form, and then no, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm picking my favourites. Yeah. He so. he has a, he has gone with a club environment, hasn't he? But yeah, Tomori and Gomez, well, that suits me down to the ground. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, before we head off, because we've come to the end, because uh, Ryan, we don't have a plonker pundit this week, do we? 
No, unfortunately, there's been a lot of cancellations, so it's been less chance for people to embarrass themselves on national TV and radio. So Gabby Abonglahor will just go. He will be our go-to when we don't have one. Well, then, Gabby Abonglahor when we don't have one. There you go. So just before we go, I want to give Victoria a shout. If you remember a few episodes back now, well, actually, it might be a month ago now. It's been a while. We had Victoria on from Her Game 2. Um, go on to our Twitter page. She's recently been on ITV Yorkshire doing a piece with them just about, you know, she talks a lot of the stuff that she talks about on our podcast about the, the, some of the stuff that she was sent when she was working for Sheffield Wednesday. Um, she has a lovely, it's a five, it's a, I think it's a three minute video um, where they talk about her and the Her Game 2 movement. Um, it's really worth heading over to look at. We, uh, Football Funders, have quote retweeted it so you'll see it. And uh, Victoria's also agreed to come on at some point in the new year. So we'll have her back on for more of a chat in the new year. So uh, really proud of their work and Victoria for going on national TV. I think that's really good to get uh, a wider knowledge for them all. Absolutely. I mean, their campaign's picked up quite a pace because I noticed that they've got a, an association with Football Manager. where mm. And a lot of clubs now. A yeah, lot of clubs. Where the um, when you're playing the game, because obviously... For those of you who've heard me, Dan and Pete all play FM quite religiously now, because thanks to Dan, it was my 40th birthday recently and he bought me the game for, for my birthday. So thank you for that one. It's been well used. <laughs> but yeah, even it's like her game too comes up on the rolling pitch side billboards. Mm. So they've good, well done to them for, for bringing it. And I would actually really like to be on the show when she comes back in where we can actually talk some football. Yeah, so she's admitted before, obviously on, on the podcast, she admits that. Her knowledge of all-round football isn't great. She's very Sheffield Wednesday, which is absolutely fine by me. But yeah, the Her Game 2 movement, has it's moving at speed. There's so many clubs it's linked with. They've done a deal with Millwall and Charlotte said they're about to do a, club, a deal with a Premier League club, which that's massive, isn't it, to get yeah. on board of Premier League. That's so please head, please head over to uh, F-Ball Funders or not. Of course, you can go to Victoria's own Twitter page, which I can't tell you right now because my computer's frozen. But yeah, head over to the F-Ball Funders Twitter page. It's on IT, at ITV Calendar as well. Find the interview with Victoria. And um, we will hopefully see her very soon here with the Football Funders. Um, so that's the end of episode 25, which of course has been our Christmas spe- uh, special. So Merry Christmas to everyone listening. Ryan, please talk about your sponsors that you're linked with and then we close up the shop. Yes, the Proper Blokes Club is a mental health walk and talk for men. You can go to www.thepropablokesclub.co.uk and see if there is a walk near you or speak with the guys and see if you can start one with their aid. Being a single guy at Christmas is often quite a difficult time when you live alone. So I'm sure there's a lot of blokes in my situation as well. So make sure you surround yourself with loved ones. And if you do need to walk and talk, check for your local one. Even if you're on Zoom or something, try not to spend it alone. Try and do get out. We've not got restrictions in this country at the moment, so you can get out, get some fresh air. So do check out the Proper Blokes Club if you feel you need to. Yeah, and of course, head over to Let Us Talk Mental Health on Twitter at Let Us Talk MH underscore MH. We have a game coming very soon for making awareness for not only Mind Charity, which is our usual, but also suicide awareness uh, a matter very close to some people in the team so yeah looking forward to that and getting back with the boys hopefully covid dependent sooner rather than later but thank you ryan um, have a good christmas and you 
Um, obviously, when we're back, hopefully we'll have Pete and we'll be able to discuss some absolute shithousery strikers. Absolutely. Take care, everyone. Merry Christmas.